Hello there, and welcome to Music Speaks. Today's guest, we have Christopher Kukuro, the opera superstar, and we'll see you at the end. Have fun. Okay, all right, and we're back with my friend Christopher. Christopher, how are you? Doing good, thank you. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Uh, today, I have the uh, fortunate ability to talk to Christopher. Unfortunate that my two friends aren't here to ask him questions, but I am here to ask Christopher all their questions today. Uh, today, we're going to focus on some performance stuff. And Chris, I know off the bat, I'm going to throw you a very loaded question. Um, but what is a dream role for a bass slash baritone? <laughs> so... Um... You're right. It is loaded uh, because there are so many options to choose from. Uh, it's one of the uh, prerogatives of the bass baritone that we get to uh, cherry pick from both the bass and the baritone uh, repertory. Um, for me, I mean, really, it comes down to what your what your taste in um, in genre of opera is, um, period, for example, um, and what your voice is best suited to, um, for example, uh, for myself, I a dream role would have to be the Flying Dutchman. I mean, that theme um, is just incredible. The music, I, I'm uh, I'm a big fan. But then I'm a, I'm a Wagnerian fan, so or a Wagner fan rather. So, you know, Alberich and Wotan and all those bigger than life characters in these fantastical stories really hold a lot of allure. Um, but uh, I have to say, you know, then if you wanted to go Mozart, Figaro is a great role, or Leporello. There's just we we have every end of the spectrum covered, and uh, yeah, we're spoiled for choice. But yeah. And what's interesting is uh, my friend Mary, who isn't here, she just announced uh, on her Facebook that she found like a little item that said the UNT is performing um, the Ring Cycle next year. <laughs> I haven't heard about it yet, but uh, oh. I had um, I had discussed uh, some things with some people at the school um, about the possibility of being able to put something like that on. Um, so I'm glad that uh, that's been maybe <laughs> taken into consideration. And uh, you better believe that I'm going to be sending some text messages uh, as soon as we get off the call. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that that seemed to kind of excite her because she really wants to do that again, especially with with you. Uh -huh. um, but that's exciting. Um, and to sort of continue the the, the narrative on on performing, um, something I like to ask, and I, I've done this a lot with uh, talking to people about performance anxiety and how to deal with it. Um, but the question in in uh, on hand is um, is what are you more nervous for the the audition? or the actual performance? Oh, absolutely, the audition yeah. um, for me. Yeah, I think um, I, I get nervous before every performance. and um, But I, I guess from my theatrical training, I prefer to characterize those nerves as performance energy. You know, it means that I really care about what I'm about to do. And I think that if you don't have that, you know, that energy, um, the performance tends to be flat, you know, you need that excitement, you need that. Uh, and the audience kind of tune into that uh, excitement and that energy as well. Um, of course, performance anxiety is a huge issue. Um, and, 
you know, it's a, it's a serious one. It can be debilitating. Um, but as long as your nerves don't rise to that level where they, they're impacting or interfering with uh, your technique, with your performance, then I, I don't have any problem with it. But yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, again, I, I, I feel, feel like a fairly confident auditionee um, because, again, my approach with the audition is, uh, and you'll notice that these are all head games that you play with yourself to try and you know mitigate the the very unnatural situation of auditioning and performing in front of thousands of people, potentially thousands. Um, but uh, my big approach to auditions is that I want the audition panel to be left with an impression of who I am as a person because my general opinion is that once you get to a certain level of singing, you're one of thousands um, that they're hearing potentially, you know, probably not for each individual thing, but um, that they have heard. And your voice is only one part, one element of what we offer uh, to the process. And realistically, there may be people who, and, and are likely to be people who are better singers than you are. Um, so what is it that you can bring to their table that that next person doesn't bring? And I think ultimately that's personality and ca your personality, your character, your work ethic, you know, and uh, so to overcome those nerves before going in, I really just focus on who am I and what do I want to show them of myself before I go in there? And that's something that I can be confident in because I've done it my whole life. You know, that's that's just who I am. Yeah. Is it is it hard to tell you that tell yourself that sometimes like when you when you hear yourself say that um, you know you're not going to be the best in the room but you can definitely add something to the conversation is that hard or do you feel I, like that just just kind of rolls off the tongue pretty easily? I, I think it's actually comforting to me um, because it takes the pressure off the singing. It's you know you, you go in and offer your voice where it's at on any given day, which with an organic instrument you never know what it's going to be. Um, 100%. We prepare ourselves technically. We look us look after our vocal health, our physical health. We hope for the best, but you know, it is affected by our emotions, by our diet, by allergens in the atmosphere. You know, it, it, there is even the weather can affect it. Um, Beverly Sills. I remember reading a quote once that said that she sang six times in her entire career when the voice worked exactly how she wanted it to six times so if someone like that can you know admits that only six times out of the the many uh performances that she gave across her career that they that was all that she was confident was how she wanted it then you know what hope do the rest of us have even Pavarotti said the same you know that uh that you aim for 80 percent not for 100 because the reality is that you, you're not going to get there um most of the time but you hope for the best and that's what you're you know you're just as long as your technical foundation is sound um, and the rest of it, you, you do what you can vocally. Um, and the idea that the voice is not the whole picture, that what you're bringing to the table is, uh, you know, you are a human being first and you're a human being who sings and acts and, and creates an atmosphere and a performance um, and also are hopefully a good person to work with. Um, and I think that that goes a long way as well, um, which, you know, is, is really, um, yes, professionalism, but also just being 
amicable, you know. Um, I, I think that a lot of, well, that, that that goes a long way, that a lot of people, you know, as long as the voice is serviceable, it's going to be close enough. It's going to be, you're already, you're, you've already made it to the callback if you're doing a live audition. So, um, so your voice is in the range of acceptable for the role. Um, so I don't know if I'm a producer and I'm saying, okay, well, am I just going to get the best voice or am I going to get the person who I want to work with uh, for this next six weeks? Right. Yeah. 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 I feel like that's a lot to think about too. Like as you're, as you're moving along and you're traveling and you're doing so many different things, um, which leads us to our first fan mail question uh, <laughs> from our friend Mary. And, and she writes, I have heard before that in voice field, natural voice color and timbre are considered in the casting of a production. For example, a tenor fit for Britain's Rape of Lucretia may not necessarily be best for a Wagner tenor. How would you describe the mentality of taking auditions in this sense? And does it affect which roles you might audition for? Right. Okay, great. Um, so uh, I think what uh, Mary's question is getting to is probably uh, along the lines of voice categorization. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not necessarily um, nature does play into it um, in the sense that um, you can't make a trombone sound like a flute. Um, so uh, we, we all have uh, very unique um, uh, makeups in terms of the length of our vocal tract, the, the thickness of our vocal folds and the rest of it, all, all of the various physical or physiological factors that contribute to what our voices sound like. And that does have uh, its boundaries in terms of um, capacity. So, for example, when you're comparing uh, Wagner to Britain, Britain is typically performed with a chamber-sized orchestra. So there are certain realities about that performance environment in comparison to a Wagnerian opera, which at its height could have a 120-piece orchestra, um, including a whole lot of brass. Now, is that to say that small voices shouldn't sing Wagner? I think that that's debatable. Um, Wagner interestingly at least in my experience tends to write very well uh in the sense that he balances when the voices are singing and when the orchestra can really let loose as opposed to verdi who i think tends to just let loose on the orchestra and you're not going to hear the singer the singer gets lost in there and you're not i mean especially with modern instrumentation and that's a whole other factor again because you know when you look at when verdi was writing you know, he wrote for A432, and now orchestras are pushing 440 plus, um, depending on where you are in the world. Um, and so it's higher, it's louder, it's the orchestration or the orchestral instruments are more efficient. Um, and so that performance environment is definitely going to play into uh, the communication between singer capacity and what repertoire is appropriate for them to sing. Um, and so, but that said, voice categorization is a really tricky thing. And every new singer who's coming out and ready to ready to join the profession, or even earlier, is going to, to university to learn to sing, wants to be branded. That we we want that sticker on our shirt that says I am a this or you know X Y Z. Um, the most well known and probably widely implemented is the German Fach system. Um, 
which uh, it's not just about the voice. Um, if you read the, the literature on, on the FAH system, it was really, I mean, we've got an expert on, on voice type uh, at, at UNT in uh, Dr. Jeffrey Snyder, who is one of the most extraordinary uh, Verdi baritones in his own right, um, but just encyclopedic knowledge of the history and development of voice type um, and categorization. And he will often say that the FARC system was designed for casting agents. It wasn't meant to be for, to limit singers to specific repertoire that they would sing. It was to help casting agents to place certain singers into certain roles. Um, and so it will include things like body type, like uh, the ease of voice in which part of the range and, uh, and a whole lot of factors, um, which, I mean, realistically as singers, we can, we can use that as a tool as well, because it kind of helps us, it might help us to guide, you know, or help to guide us into the repertoire that we are more commercial in. Um, because another thing that I like to say is you're the voice type for the repertoire that you get paid to sing. Um, at the end of the day, I might say, well, yeah, I sing Mozart best, but if I'm getting paid to sing Rossini, then I'm a, I'm a Rossini based baritone. I mean, that's controversial as well, because people will say, well, what if you get paid to sing something that's inappropriate for you at the wrong time? And that is a very real risk and, and, and you have to be judicious, but at the same time, Yes, there are natural limits and capacity, you know, capacity to the voice. Um, there are natural qualities and uh, that some of those are timbral. Um, some of them are just volume wise, you know, the size of the instrument um, that will uh, will dictate your uh, viability in certain repertoire when compared to the performance environment of that repertoire. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. So much sense. And does that bother you sometimes or do you feel like the system is in place for, for what's happening now? I'm in, it, I mean, I am in that, you know, um, realm of singers who have been tortured by the idea of voice type for my entire, uh, all of my studies and, and career to date, because it's like, okay, where do I sit? What repertoire should I sing? What repertoire can I sing and what repertoire does industry want me to sing? Um, and I think for me, um, I tend to sit, if we're looking at far somewhere in the, in the German system as a character base or a character baritone. Um, and what that means is that character roles tend to be both the buffer or the comic clown and the bad guy. Um, a, a lot of villains like Alberich, for example, in, in the Wagner's Ring Cycle is, is a character role. Um, and that means that you're constantly straddling this line of what to present. I mean, for myself, for example, I've got an audition season coming up this, this year. And I say, okay, well, I, I get five arias that will represent who I am and what I do as an artist. Um, how do I divide those five areas to show that I have comic sensibility, villainous sensibility, the range that I'm able to sing, um, and, and everything else that goes into casting, um, without an audition panel sitting there saying, well, this guy doesn't really know 
what his voice does or doesn't know, you know, he's confused about his bark or, or similar, which is a criticism that, that could be leveled against a singer if you go in with drastically um, different types of repertoire for different voice types. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and our second mail, fail, mail in question from our friend Hunter is, is this. He writes, has there been a role that you have found particularly challenging and was it because of the vocal necessities of the character? That's, um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I'm resisting the urge to say every role. <laughs> um, I mean, to be fair, every role has its challenges. Uh, sure. Opera isn't easy. Um, but yes, absolutely, there are, there are more challenging roles than others. There are roles that are kind of square peg in a square hole um, type roles that are just a natural fit. So for example, Neporello for me um, is just a natural fit. Gianni Schicchi is a natural fit. It just is, it's a very comfortable character. The, the voice kind of suits both of those roles very well. Um, an interesting one uh, that I did just this spring was Dulcamara, which is out of the Elixir of Love by Donizetti. Dulcamara is a comic role. Um, and, you know, he's a bit of a charlatan, um, you know, Pirelli out of Sweeney Todd, you know, street mountebank type character. He, he sweeps into town and he's selling this, well, he's selling his, his miracle elixir, which then turns into selling uh, poor Nemorino a bottle of wine under the guise of it being a uh, Isolde's love potion so that, um, so that Nemorino can make Adina fall in love with him. Um, Character-wise, absolutely uh, hand in glove, like just a, a very comfortable character for me, one that um, that really was well suited. And the majority of the role is absolutely uh, vocally in, in my wheelhouse. Interestingly, the aria is the first thing you sing when you come on stage, and it is nightmarish, um, which you think, oh, but it's such a fun, light character. And it's very difficult to keep that fun, light character to the voice when you're sitting there going, man, this is sitting high. I'm exhausted. It goes for three and a half hours. Um, you know, it's a very long aria. It has a lot of patter. And where it sits, possibly, again, owing to modern tuning as opposed to uh, the, the tuning in Donizetti's day. Um, but it sits right in the passaggio, um, which... Uh, for people who aren't aware, the passaggio is an area of the voice that involves a whole lot of um, acoustic negotiation that the singer has to be able to to um, to navigate in order to um, not exhaust the voice. Basically, um, that's in simple terms, but that that's the crux of it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would say Dulcamara is um, is one that I, it got a lot easier. Um, the more I sang it, which kind of stands to reason, practice makes perfect. But part of that was A, getting it into the body, uh, but B, also kind of getting an understanding of the pacing of the aria in relation to the rest of the role and making sure that you don't cook yourself by oversinging the aria and then having to come out and do, because it's an aria and then you get a pretty fiendish duet immediately after. Um, and so these are things that you have to consider when you're, when you're uh, plotting your vocal economy for the role um, that you don't spend too much too early on and then leave yourself shortchanged later in the in the opera um, 
but uh, but these are the, the the challenges that you go through with every every new role that you take on, and hopefully when you are um, offered the role, you have an opportunity to kind of familiarize yourself with the demands before you accept it, so that even though uh, it may be challenging for the first time um, out the gate, it's not something that's insurmountable. That's right. that's where you're really getting into trouble. If if you right. if you say yes to everything that comes your way without a full appreciation for what that role entails, and then you get into performance and you're just not doing anyone a service um, by uh, by doing that. Least of all yourself, because you're less likely to be rehired, obviously. Um, but um, but yeah, I'd, I'd say that's, that's probably. Has anyone ever cast you as a tenor before? <laughs> I've never been cast as a tenor, but I have been, uh, I have toyed with tenor repertoire before, absolutely. Yeah. Um, particularly when I was a, a little younger, not not a whole long, uh, lot of time ago, just five years ago, was the most recently that uh, that it was suggested to me that I might be a Heldon tenor. Um, but range does not make the voice type. Um, I might be able to crack out a great B flat on a good day you know, when, when the moon is in perfect alignment with, you know, uh, but um, that doesn't mean that I'm necessarily a tenor. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, my speaking voice is pretty, um, pretty you know, indica indicative of where, yeah. where the voice sits, but not necessarily, you know, I've heard coloratura sopranos, the highest coloratura sopranos who have gravelly low voices and then were able to sing stratospheric notes. Um, but, uh, you know, my, in my work with my teacher, when I first got to UNT, that was kind of a big part of uh, of what I wanted to know. Part of the the training that I wanted to undertake was what is my voice type? What is the repertoire that's appropriate? And uh, and my teacher very sagely advised that well, let's learn how to sing first, then we'll work out what what the next step is. And of course, I, I had a, a, a solid foundation at that time. But what he was saying was, is this the most efficiently that you can sing? Is this uh, the most, um, is this the, the peak of your technical optimization? Or is there more that you can achieve um, with, with the work that we do? And when you achieve that, that level of uh, technical refinement, is that going to expand the type of repertoire that you can sing? And um, I stand by that. It's it, it it has stood me in good stead. Um, I always love revisiting old repertoire and having that sensation of saying, "Oh wow, I could not have sung this five years ago, um, or even a year ago." It's the funniest thing. Like I'll do a role, and then the next year, I'll, I'll feel my tech that, that that I've turned a corner in my technical approach, and then it's I'll go back and sing the aria from that from that role that I had sung the previous year and think. Why couldn't I have sung it like that then? You know, but, <laughs> uh, but that's yeah. the that's the process. We're always learning. We're always growing. We're always, you know, ideally you are always growing. Ideally you're always learning. That's mm -hmm. I think the best way to approach the the profession. Well, if you figure out how to build a time machine, let me know because I'm. Really <laughs> um, but the next question is actually kind of a tricky one, but again, sort of in that same hunter-like vein. Okay. Which is, is there anything about instrumentalists that you wonder as a about as a vocalist 
or something you have noticed that you feel differs most from vocal performance? Uh, I, I think that um, the, the most obvious, and I hope it's not a cheap answer, but the, the, the most obvious um, difference between instrumentalists and vocalists are the limitations of the voice compared to an instrument. Um, we're dealing with these two little rubber band like, uh, you know, vocal folds in, in our throat that are, are so small um, and they can only do so much. So in terms of practice regimes, you know, when when instrumentalists who are so I mean, it's it's amazing um, what instrumentalists do and how much time and effort goes into their craft. Um, just in, in the practice room, that you can sit in a practice room and practice for, you know, five hours straight. Now, a vocalist might try and do two hours straight, whether or not that's a good idea, uh, probably not. But, you know, because realistically, you know, three 20-minute sessions, four 15-minute sessions across the day is probably, you know, the vocal health gurus would say that's that's the best option. Um, whereas, you know, voc uh, instrumentalists can, can just apply themselves for such long periods of time. Um, and I think that it uh, it's important for um, when, when you're working in ensembles, you know, I, I've worked in ensembles where there hasn't necessarily been an appreciation of that uh, from the instrumentalists, where it's like, well, I can't just sing these high notes over and over and over again until we get it right. I can mark those high notes, mm. but if I keep trying to sing them, I'm going to have no voice for the performance. Um, right. Right, and yeah. and so, again, it's just one of the perils of dealing with an organic instrument. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, th I think that's the key difference that, that I'm most cognizant of between between the two. I, I thought for maybe a second you were going to say maybe the physical space that one has to be in to do to play the instrument versus the like physical space of, of singing being that when when someone's about to play or do something with an instrument but they're sitting down that they're like in the space of the instrument rather than within the space of giving them some more space to just kind of be more open would be the vocal thing that i'm thinking about as in uh the difference between performing in a, or practicing in a practice room as opposed yeah. to in a, in a theater sure, uh, environment sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah well i mean that's, um, I, I think I had mentioned uh, last time we met that mm -hmm. uh, one, of, one of my previous coaches, um, Simon Kenway, fabulous, fabulous coach, pianist, conductor, all-round musician, would always say to us that um, the singer doesn't play only one instrument, we've got two. Um, you, you play the voice and the room. Um, and uh, I think that uh, I, I, this semester I took course uh, vocal repertoire masterclass where we got to it was a bunch of singers and a bunch of pianists and we got to um, we, we worked on song repertoire together um, but the focus of the, the class in a lot of ways was to uh, to create a, a common language between the instrumentalists and the singers um, and to gain an appreciation of each other's crafts and each other's perspectives on performance and rehearsal and kind of bridging that gap between the two. Um, 
And, you know, I think that to an extent, yes, singers uh, play the room, but um, in that same sense, uh, instrumentalists who are playing in an ensemble with vocalists kind of play three instruments because they have to play their own, the room, and have to be aware of where the singer is at uh, in terms of dynamic, because obviously most, well, many instruments could easily overwhelm the sound of the singer. Um, if you, especially if you're not pitted. Um, so, so yeah, there is, um, that aspect to it as well. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know we covered this earlier in the interview, but Mary wants to go back to that sort of, um, performance anxiety idea. Uh -huh. Um, but do you have a routine, a mental dietary, anything for opening night and how would you rate your comfort level from opening night to closing night? Yeah, right. Um, well, starting with the second part of that question, uh, anxiety is um, almost entirely abated by closing night most of the time. I mean, by the time you get to, to, to closing night, um, you have most of the time um, a not only an understanding of, how do I put this? When, when you're in rehearsal, um, you can't know for sure what the effect of performance anxiety or nerves is going to have on your, uh, on your performance, you know, so opening night is really a testing night where you're, you're going out there and you are, uh, you are as, as prepared mentally, vocally, physically as possible to perform the role. But, um, anxiety can do funny things. You know, if, if something you know, if you lose focus for just one second and you're in the middle of a long recitative, which is speech-like, um, you know, speech-like singing, and there aren't a whole lot of indicators in the accompaniment from the the, um, the continuum um, as to what is supposed to happen next, or you didn't necessarily hear clearly the words that were sung to you, and so you miss a cue and then maybe you jump ahead because you, then, you know, the fight or flight kicks in and you just kind of have to make do and hope for the best. The music keeps playing, you know, and uh, and you get to the end of it. Um, you, ultimately, you just don't know how you will necessarily react under that pressure. Um, and that's part of what our training is, is that we, we want to be as prepared as possible so that when we're under that uh, heightened pressure or anxiety that we do perform uh, how we want to be performing. But by the time you get to closing night, I think you have a greater sensitivity to what your body or how your body is going to react to that pressure, to that performance anxiety. Um, and you have, you can be reassured because you've made it this far most of the time, hopefully you've made it this far, uh, without too big an incident. And, uh, and so you can kind of just relax and have fun with, with the show. Um, it's funny, like tracking how that happens across the course of a run of a show and it depends on how, how many performances you're giving, you know, it always, uh, I hate doing one or two shows of, of an opera because I feel like the first show, as I said, is that testing ground. It's really just getting the nerves out on the stage and, 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 and giving your best performance under those conditions. And then the second show, there's always a little bit of a lull. Um, but by the third show, you really settle into it in my experience. And that's when you really start not just, performing the show but playing with the show 
um, that that real uh, comfort level and you know everything is so solid by the third show that you're you're good to go. Um, and I don't think that that's avoidable. You know, I don't think it's a case of oh well, you should have just rehearsed more, because you can't rehearse being under performance conditions in that way. Um, and so yeah, I think that's that's a funny thing in terms of my my own routine. Um, I mean, I, I try and, uh, get a good night's sleep. Sleep is a big one for me and my voice that if I'm not, if I'm not rested, um, it's not going to work as well. I always like to hydrate intensively, particularly the day before, but also the day off. Um, Jennifer Rowley, uh, who does a lot of work with young artists in addition to being an extraordinary, um, artist, international soprano, um, she, uh, I'll always take this advice from her where she's like, you do not sing until your pee is clear. And, uh, and there's something to it. The, the, I'm telling you, the high notes work way better when, when that is the case. Um, so sure. making sure that you're well hydrated. I'm always conscious of reflux. Um, I, don't, uh, I don't know to what extent that I'm necessarily affected by it, but I, because I, if I do have it, it's silent. Um, which is one of the perils of, of reflux, um, gastroesophageal reflux, you'll feel heartburn and, and similar. Whereas um, when it's affecting the larynx, it may only be a small amount of acid, but again, we're, we're dealing with those small rubber bands. Um, and so it doesn't take a whole lot of acid to upset them, but the effects can be pretty devastating. Um, mm. And so, you know, I try not to eat high acid foods the night before uh, so that, uh, I, you know, I try and try and avoid any effects there. And then mid performance, I mean, I'm a talker, as you can tell, uh, given uh, <laughs> you know, my, my loquacious answers, but, um, yeah. I tr it, I know that it's better for me if I don't do a whole lot of talking pre or mid show, if I just kind of take some quiet time, uh, sit in the, in the dressing room, really focus on, on my music, on, on on my nerves or my head, just kind of getting into a good Zen mindset. Um, that's going to hold me in good stead when I tread the boards. Right. Yeah. Um, well, well, Chris, I wanted to say, um, your long answers have been great. <laughs> um, and you're right. You, you really do have a way of speaking really candidly to the, to the answer a question. Um, so I'm, I'm really proud to, to, to know you and to have you as a guest here on the show. Uh, but we're going to take a quick break, and I hope that's okay with you too, listener, because if you're interested, we're going to take a break sponsored by our friends at Anchor. And if you would like to support this podcast, please go to anchor.com and search Jason Speaks Podcast to find ways to reach out to us, and you will find our social media and ways that you can contribute to said podcast. And we'll be back in just a bit, so stay with us. Thank you for listening and keep listening to what you love. <laughs>